Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Yesterday's Super Tuesday results hit close to home, Massachusetts to be exact. Here's what New England Public Radio heard from some voters. He financed his own campaign, and I think he may actually do something without outside influence. Hopefully he'll do something for the good of this country. I just went for Cruz. I just, you know, he felt like the lesser of, I guess, <laughs> two evils, three evils, whatever. It's just mudslinging, mudslinging. Especially on the Republican side, I can't even watch it. It's just, it's just a big joke. Ben Carson is a fabulous individual. Yeah, I know he doesn't have a chance in so long in hell, but I wish he did. Well, yeah, he didn't, grabbing about 3% in the Bay State. Donald Trump destroyed his Massachusetts competition yesterday and rolled two wins in seven states. His new best buddy, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, delivered the news. Tonight is the beginning of Donald Trump bringing the Republican Party together for a big victory this November. Meanwhile, on the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton eked out a win over Bernie Sanders in Massachusetts and swept through the South, winning seven of 11 races. We will need all of you to keep volunteering, contributing, doing everything you can, talking to your friends and neighbors, because this country belongs to all of us, not just those at the top. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, as we enter the wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, to talk about what we saw out of Super Tuesday. Joining us in studio, Colin McEnroe, our regular panelist, of course, is off this week. He's enjoying one of his favorite cities, San Francisco. So I'm very pleased to welcome in some friends, Kevin Rennie, attorney and columnist for The Hartford Current. Kevin, good to see you once again. Good morning. And bringing in somebody who we've always wanted to sit right next to Kevin Rennie, but we've <laughs> never done this before, is Rennie Falco. Rennie Falco is associate professor and director of the Public Policy and Law Program at Trinity College. Hi there, Adrian. How are you? Good morning. And also with us down the line from New Haven is Paul Bass. He's editor of the New Haven Independent. He joins us from the WNPR studios in New Haven. He also, of course, hosts a great show called Dateline New Haven on the brand new radio station down there from the Independent WNHH. Hi once again, Paul. Hi, John. Nice to see you. Hear I'll, you. I'll at least hear you. So yeah. I'm going to start with you, Renny Falco, and just get some of your your big ideas that you heard from yesterday. I, and I want to go through some of the tape that we heard, too. We heard from some Donald Trump supporters. We also heard from Chris Christie talking about Donald Trump now unifying the Republican Party, which makes you chuckle a little bit. And then you hear from uh, Hillary Clinton talking about America belongs to all of us, not just the, those at the top, which sounds an awful lot like another guy she's running against. But anyway, I'll let you go next. What, what, what do you see out of yesterday? Well, a couple of things. Obviously, Donald Trump has broad support. And as I said to you a couple months ago, uh, he is bringing new people in to vote. Very, very high voter turnout for the Republicans, higher than for the Democrats. I think that's important. Uh, Secondly, I think it's interesting to see where Hillary won, which is in the South. A lot of minority support in the South. But in the general election, those are not states that are likely to go Democratic. So I think that's an interesting point. I haven't heard anybody really talk about that yet, but I think it's important. It will help her probably get the nomination because she was so strong. But if you look at the places where Sanders won, those are places that are 
traditionally Democratic, or at least lean Democratic. And you talk about the high voter turnout on the Republican side. Bernie Sanders needs the high voter turnout in order to, to do well in any of these contests, and he just didn't have what he needed. Yeah, and as somebody who works with college students, um, I think when you are dependent on younger people, as he is, I think he gets so much uh, enthusiasm and energy from young people. I talk to them. They really love him, but they don't always vote. And so that's a problem for him. Kevin Rennie, what did you say? I saw despair creeping across <laughs> my television screen until I turned it off. <laughs> oh, my, there was a lot of despair. It depends on Maybe which I despair, say, what, what flavor felt, of despair. I felt despair. <laughs> okay. I am not able to explain this Donald Trump. Uh, I'm, I, I don't even know phenomenon is the right word anymore. I just – uh, you know, I've spent a, I spent a fair number of years in politics. Now I've spent a lot of years writing about politics. I have no answers on this. I just I, I and when I listen to the victory speeches of all of, of all of them, I think this it sounds like we're a nation of miserably unhappy people, and that's not my everyday experience. And I'm a lawyer, so you know I I deal with people who have troubles. You see some misery, and I don't. I I listen to them and. I hear Hillary Clinton really uh, give, delivering a roll call of grievances in a lot of her – except in a lot of her victory speeches. And um, that's so unusual in a party that's had control of the White House for the last eight years. Usually you have to kind of walk a walk a, a careful line on that. And now – you know, and I hear Donald Trump last night. It, 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 was not a, it was not a traditional victory speech. But – you know he's he's doom and gloom and grievances and misery and and um you know i'm not i don't know where the all these people are well but and we by the, i'm sorry yeah, no, by please. the way we live in a state where more than half the people want to leave and and my day-to-day experience though is that generally people can live with the state of the world we live we live in a miraculous age <laughs> but yet we, we're having a conversation about how terrible everything is. And I want to actually come back to that point. But, Paul, first of all, your, your big thoughts. I mean, uh, Rennie Falco sees high, high voter turnout. Kevin Rennie sees just utter bleakness and despair. What do you see? I see fascism. <laughs> I'm not joking. I mean, I really think it wasn't funny. A lot of thoughts came into focus last night. Yeah. I think Rennie's completely right about Clinton's weakness with a big core constituency of lower income white male voters in this country. And I think that's going to be very hard for her against Donald Trump. And in the last few days, culminating into last night, we saw a scenario unfolding that we've seen before in this country of the potential of fascism. And I think that's what Trump's candidacy is not about conservative politics. Trump is not a conservative. He's not a liberal. He's about power. He masters social media. He masters the reality TV nature of politics. But also he's convincing the little guy that he's standing up for them despite evidence to the contrary. I don't know if you've read Plot Against America by Philip Roth where he went back historically and did a counterfactual narrative of what happened if Lindbergh had won Mm -hmm. and the way the senators and governors started falling into place even though they knew it was dishonest and dangerous. That's what Chris Christie was about. That's why I was not laughing when Chris Christie was looking so uncomfortable because he was the key. He and Jeff Sessions, the senator who also already has come on board with Trump, I think when they see the tide turning that way, they participate in that. And then also what we saw come into focus was that the name Rudolph Giuliani, Rudolph Giuliani is not being mentioned, the former New York mayor. He's the one who's whispering right now in, in Trump's ear, according to reports about strategy. When you look at him and Chris Christie, one of them will be attorney general if he's elected. 
who knows, even maybe vice president. It's a very author. It's not a conservative political operation. It's not a liberal conservative population. It's about power and fascism and misuse of the public might and uh, to silence dissent. Well, and, what, and that's very scary. Me, Giuliani, Christie, and Trump are a troika that scare the death out of me. Uh, Rennie Falco. Yeah, I don't. I don't disagree with that. Uh, I think that the you know the use of the media, and it's not just the use; it's the monopolization. Okay, so on, in some ways you could say it's maybe a little bit like Berlusconi in Italy, but there is an element of thuggery here, and I think it's really important to mention that uh, the way that Trump treats the press I think is really problematic, and it has nothing to do with which side you're on, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Or the it's Twitter the use last night. I mean, when he has six million Twitter followers and there was a woman on TV who criticized them, you know, legitimately, and he has his Twitter followers start to attack her with visual images, sexual images, by the hundreds of thousands, anytime someone speaks up against them. When he says in public, I want to beat the blank out of someone in that crowd and turns them against them, it's not just the press. This is mob rule. Well, okay, so, so uh, Kevin Rennie, I'd love your, uh, your thoughts about this because there have been, I, I don't know how many big think pieces that probably should have been written a couple of years ago about, well, has, has, has Donald Trump been the Frankenstein monster created out of a Republican Party that doesn't know what it wants or an American people that isn't exactly sure what it wants? Um, I'm hearing from our other guests about fascism and thuggery. I mean, is that part of what you see or is it something different? You're a Republican. <laughs> I loathe Donald Trump and I've loathed him for a long time, almost as long as I, well, probably longer than I've disliked Chris Christie. So I'm, you know, I'm, you're not going to get it. You're not, <laughs> I don't have the broad sweep of this, but um, I do think that Donald Trump has an authoritarian instinct and uh, it's very dangerous. But I would also mention that politics on many levels, but especially on the national level, is is often involves thuggery and ugliness and and just really bad stuff that we don't we don't get to and, see and more but more of it all the time. I mean, am I right? You've been oh, in politics so. for a I long think time. More of it. It's just oh, yes. more of it all yeah. the time. And I think it's I think in many ways it's become more acceptable. You know, Bill Clinton com- was complaining a few weeks ago about how how uh, Bernie Sanders supporters were so misogynist about about uh, on social media about uh, Hillary Clinton supporters, and it's just you know this social media has. It's it's an odd sort of uh, anonymity in which people can yet at the same time be heard by a, by a uh, a broad audience and it's you know it's not attractive it's just you know you know the the I, someone said and I'm not subscribing to this but I think Winston Churchill said spend 5 minutes with the average voter and you'll start to worry about democracy there's an upside to democracy too. And oh, but democracy social, is one. I don't mean to no, say but democracy I mean social is not media great. too. There's an upside and downside. It's how it's used. And in every election, the candidates who emerge make a decision whether to appeal to hope and the best instincts of Americans in democracy, or whether to go to lowest common denominator and win through grievance. And when you look at Bill Clinton, the second George Bush, Barack Obama, they all did appeal to people's instincts and belief in a, that they like their fellow citizen, they believe it's a good country, that it can be better, that you can have popular movements that unite to make a country better rather than to punish people you don't agree with. So that's still up in the air. And what's troubling me about this election is it's running in the other direction. Uh, Rennie? Yeah, and I think it's important to mention that over the past eight years, in my view, the presidency itself has been delegitimized. The obstructionism, the way in which President Obama was treated by Republicans. I just think this is fact. Again, it's not what side you're on. It's factual. 
calling out at a State of the Union address, calling him a liar. I think that the office itself has almost been delegitimized, which makes it then possible to have somebody like Trump, who's not a typical politician and who's almost not running for president. He's he's running in a – in other words, it's not about an agenda. It's not about a political ideology. To me, it is about – convincing people that he can restore things, that, that, that we have chaos, that, that everything is amok. I, I completely agree with Kevin on this, that there's like this dis, you know, despairing tone. But I think because the office itself has in many ways just lost its legitimacy, in part because of the attacks on it, and this might even have been going on for longer. I, I think it went, and I think it's been going on longer than just during the Barack Obama administration, but I think it also points to something I wasn't really going to raise here, but the specter hanging over all this right now is, of course, this Supreme Court uh, nomination battle. Anthony Scalia passes away, and now we're hearing very important cases right now in a four-to-four court. There is another institution, Kevin Rennie, of America that seems to in many ways be delegitimized. De- de- we're, we're talking about it purely as a, as a political uh, calculation: How many Democrats versus well, how many we Republicans? Talk about, we do. We for a long time we've talked about um, Supreme Court nominations that way. You know, but this might be the, the first nomination that is held up in a way that we actually have uh, the delegitimizing of the American presidency and the Supreme Court happening kind of at the same time in this really strange uh, election season. I don't. I don't agree yeah. with that. You know, the Supreme Court has been. Thrust into politics for for at various times. Luckily, not perma- not not all the time. Yes, but at various yes, yes. times. Mm, maybe in most dramatically with Franklin Roosevelt in the late 1930s when he he concocted a scheme to pack it and then went out and tried to defeat everyone all the Democratic senators who had opposed him and was thwarted. Uh, that that was far more dramatic than anything we're seeing right now in New Jersey. Just the other day. Chris Christie nominated someone for the state Supreme Court where there is a vacancy. The Democrats in the legislature announced yesterday they are not going to give him a hearing. This this sort of thing does go on. It does go on. And it's it has more to do with politics than than the party that you're in. It's it is, uh, you know, those I know the president dismisses some of the things that his fellow Democrats said uh, in the Bush administration with Supreme Court nominations. But. Both sides have engaged in this this kind of political gamesmanship. I, I'll also say quickly, you mentioned New Jersey. A, a whole series of, of newspapers across the state of New Jersey have asked Chris Christie to step down. Uh, in some ways, him su- throwing his support behind Donald Trump and not doing some of the things that people in New Jersey seem to want may even be throwing into question how important the job of governor of New Jersey is. And, hey, let's actually talk about the, these couple governors as we talk in the wheelhouse here uh, with Kevin Rennie, with Rennie Falco, and also with Paul Bass, taking a look at some of the things for Super Tuesday. I just find it interesting, Paul Bass, you know, we see Chris Christie, of course, last night. It's a very it's a very visual medium. I can't really explain it on radio. The sight of Chris Christie looking incredibly powerfully uncomfortable. You've probably seen vines. We're tweeting some out now yeah. at, at where we live. Yeah. Um, but it's not so very long ago that uh, Chris Christie was running against Donald Trump. This is the sort of thing that Chris Christie was saying uh, just fairly recently, actually. The kind of person you want in the Oval Office and the kind of person you want standing on the stage next September against Hillary Rodham Clinton is not a person that when one thing goes sideways, when one thing seems not fair, they're just going to walk away and take their marbles and go away. You want someone who's going to say, oh, yeah? 
Oh, yeah. Well, that's Chris Christie not so long ago. Now he's standing behind Donald Trump and he's uh, supporting and in many ways legitimizing his campaign. Um, Paul Bass, I mean, what do you, what do you make of this? The, the Chris Christie factor, uh, he and a, and a few other you mentioned this and a few other prominent Republicans now saying we want to be part of a Donald Trump uh, coalition to actually make America great again. How long ago was that Christie statement? Was it more than a week ago? It, it was more than a week ago. Okay, that's ancient history now in modern <laughs> political discourse. I mean, it doesn't matter that Donald Trump said that he um, never heard of David Duke when he spoke openly about David Duke, when he you know, was avoiding commenting on the support from the Ku Klux Klan. It doesn't matter that one day he was for a mandate for health care and the next day he wasn't and the next day he wasn't sure. It doesn't matter that Chris Christie slammed his opponent. We go, Chris Christie understands, Donald Trump understands that if you master sort of thug mass politics and reality TV politics, no one cares, no one remembers what was on reality TV a minute ago or what story was hot on the uh, internet news cycle three cycles ago, which was an hour and a half ago. It's 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 not it's more a drama. And I think that he understands how to play that. Yeah, I completely agree. And I also think that social media does play an important role. Uh, And that's the world people are living in. There's a virtual quality. And it's also fact free. And when you live in a fact free world, the facts don't matter. So Trump can stand up. I'm, I'm serious about this. And one of the things, you know, political scientists um, have been doing a considerable amount of research on this. And what they have discovered is that the more firmly you believe something, the less likely empirical information can get through. And I think as we look at the polarized nature of our politics right now, that's part of what we're looking at, that you can't convince people. So whether Trump said it or not, you know, whether he remembers who David Duke is or not, it doesn't matter because the people who support him are not receiving that information in a way that it will undermine their support. Well, the exit polls that we're seeing now, now we're getting a, a pretty decent uh, collection of them because we're having more, we've had more, a fair number of primaries so far, are showing that Donald Trump supporters are not persuadable. That they, you know, they are they are at a certain level. They're not a majority, but they're but it's very very hard. Once they make up their mind, their minds are made up. Whereas late deciders seem more likely to go, depending on the race, with either um, Marco Rubio, some places Ted Cruz, and and earlier in the ra- in the race to John Kasich. Um, we got a tweet from Lee Appleby, communications director for the Connecticut Democratic Party. Love you guys, but clearly none of you were watching the Democratic speeches last night. Both delivered positive, optimistic messages. And I played a little bit of, of tape from Hillary Clinton. Actually, Renny Falco, sounding an awful lot even more like how she's going to deliver the Bernie Sanders message. It, it is, it's optimistic in a way, but it's also a message about taking on the establishment, taking on something that Bernie Sanders has been talking Absolutely. about. She is channeling. I said to my husband last night, I heard it, and I said she is channeling. Bernie, right there, and yeah, just wh- like a class, you're just a typical class warrior, and you know from the from the one percent telling uh, telling us we should be aggrieved at all these rich people. But I think it was a slightly <laughs> different message. I don't think it was a fearful message. I think it was a message that we're going to take on the people we need to take on. But I did. I but don't. Who are the Who are the people? Who are the people she's taking on? 
What do I think she's taking no, on? No, yeah, who 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 exactly is she taking I mean, on? In channeling Bernie Sanders? Yeah, I mean when she when she talks about taking on the people at the top, Kevin Rennie's point is she she is the people at the top. When she talks to Goldman Sachs, she's sure. part of the people and, at the top. Isn't that, that part of the Bernie Sanders message? Absolutely. And what she's saying is should she get elected? I'm not saying that this is, you know, a persuasive argument. I'm saying what what she is articulating is that she will be willing to confront and deal with those issues that people feel strongly about. She mentioned student loans. She mentioned a bunch of different things, it seems to me, that were important, that are important in the Sanders campaign. Um, no because I, from, uh, Paul no Bass, go ahead. Yep. No one's going to buy that coming from Hillary Clinton. But I, I like Lee Appleby's point. I think it is true that the reasons, and Sanders did succeed, by the way. I think this whole narrative, I didn't do well. No one ever thought Bernie Sanders was going to be the um, oh, nominee. The reason that Carl Rove was running ads to help Bernie Sanders, they knew he wasn't going to be the general election nominee. But he did bring a lot of people in with what I think is a positive message. I don't agree with Kevin about class warfare. I think that's just kind of front talk for allowing business as usual where the very richest people manipulate government. I mean, Bernie Sanders, if you look at the best ads that were run in this campaign that people liked, it was that almost kind of silly Simon and Garfunkel ad where all just the pictures of people who gave Bernie money were flashed on the scene. <laughs> and you have this idea that kind of people can join together and not have division and, and that government is us, it's not them, that we solve problems together. And I think that's been a, a positive undercurrent of this campaign. I mean, he did win four states last night. He did lose American Samoa. I was kind of holding out for that one. But uh, you know, I, I think that the fact that millions of people have even given small amounts of money so he could com- compete fairly against someone with super PACs, the fact that people believed it was worth getting involved in politics with a positive vision, I do agree with what Lee Apple retweeted. Uh, Kevin, quickly, but not coming. I don't, by, by the way, I by no means do I think that Bernie Sanders is done. I think he, I think he, he has the resources and and the essentially a, a committed again a committed group of, of voters that he you know he can continue to to make a race of this although he's he's not going to have enough delegates and i think it's you know one of the things that i'm not able to provide an explanation for but i thought was interesting is that 8 years ago hillary clinton won massachusetts over barack obama by a huge margin and she barely eked out a victory against bernie sanders mm. uh, and i don't think it has anything to do with geography of vermont you know i don't think vermont really People in Massachusetts take take much attention from my news. And we, we, yeah, we've talked about this before. Is this this being in a close by state actually doesn't matter no, a whole lot? Matter. It's, it's really matter. hard to name. But the I thought, you know, from the you know, state. so Bernie Sanders in in Massachusetts did much better eight eight years later than than um, Barack Obama did. And I just I found that I found that an interesting change of of what what the. Um, what the makeup of, of well, Democratic primary George McGovern, the only state he won was uh, was Massachusetts, right, in 1972. I mean, Massachusetts, I think Bernie actually would have done better last night if people weren't so scared of Donald Trump and kind of coalescing around uh, Hillary that way. But I think Bernie Sanders in the end not to win the nomination. I, don't th- I think he's more of a movement candidate like Jesse Jackson in 1988. So he has enough money, enough delegates, enough message support where he can press his issues all the way to the convention. But he's not going in for the kill against Hillary Clinton. He's not standing out there every day and saying, release those speeches with the transcripts from, from Goldman Sachs, which he got a quarter million dollars for almost. I mean, that's what someone who's trying to win for himself would do. So I think Kevin's right that he's in it to last, but that he's certainly not going to get the nomination. Yeah, and he wants to move her to the left. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I think he's enjoying it. You know, there is that. I, not all these <laughs> candidates enjoy being on, on the trail when they're not yeah. doing them. But I think, you know, you raise $40 million in the month of February. You have these big crowds turning out. Yeah. It's a lot of love. And 
if, if you want to see enjoying it, watch a Donald Trump speech and watch a uh, Bernie Sanders speech. If you want to see not enjoying it, watch Chris Christie standing behind Donald Trump last night. That's not enjoying it. Uh, uh, Kevin Rennie is a columnist for the Hartford Current. Rennie Falco is a professor of public policy and at the uh, public policy and law program at Trinity College. And Paul Bass is from the New Haven Independent. When we come back, we're going to talk a bit about what's going on in the state uh, this week with Governor Malloy. Kind of a bad budget week, but also some good news coming out of New Haven. That's next in the wheelhouse where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today, it's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're joined by Kevin Rennie, a columnist for the Hartford Current, Rennie Falco from Trinity College, and Paul Bass from the New Haven Independent. Uh, Colin McEnroe is away, and while he's away, we're actually going to be playing one of my favorite ever Colin interviews, and I really encourage you to listen at 1 o'clock this afternoon. He sits down with Vin Baker, former NBA star who, of course, grew up in Connecticut. It's a real redemption story. This is a guy who lost all of his NBA money. He's working at a Starbucks, and he's, uh, he's a minister, and it's a fascinating conversation that I do hope you'll join us for at 1 o'clock on the Colin McEnroe Show today. We're talking through the week's news. I want to quickly, before we turn away from election stuff from last night, let's go to Roy in Guilford. Hey, Roy, what's up? You're on where we live. Oh, hi, John. Yes, uh, I was wondering uh, about your your panelist's opinion of uh, the Hillary uh, Clinton email issue and whether or not she might get tangled up in some very serious um, legal problems just as the election approaches. Uh, Roy, it's a, it's a great question, Ke- Kevin Rennie. We've got the possibility of you know, difficult legal situations for Hillary Clinton, uh, Donald Trump facing lawsuits over Trump University. You know, could we actually have the, the two nominees tied up in court? Giving depositions when they should be doing <laughs> debate prep. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly possible the Trump University case is going forward in, in New York. And this, this email problem is, gonna ca- is casting a long shadow over Hillary Clinton. And it was a, you know, we, we, sometimes we th- I think she'd like to dismiss it as a foolish decision on her part but it 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 looks uh, it, it, it looks like a much more sort of menacing premeditated act on her part and also and also reckless and, and, and what do you make of it Rennie? i mean do do we put it aside as this was a mistake we all move on or this shows something about how she does things in office they're not mutually exclusive yeah i think it says something about her I also think there are a lot of people who would like to use this against her. I mean, I don't think that this is just any old thing. In the same way that I don't think the Trump University is just any old thing, I think that there are people who are out there who would very much like to undermine the candidacies of both of them. I think it was incredibly stupid and dumb and that it could really have potentially enormous problems for her. But as you mentioned, Paul Bass, of the people who might want to use it against her, Bernie Sanders does not seem to be one. No, and I think because Bernie's more concerned about the Democrats winning the general election and advancing his Democratic Socialist agenda, and that I think he puts that above his own advancement. I care about the emails. I care about the private use of the Secretary of State's office to help the Clinton Foundation when she was dealing with foreign governments. But against the Donald Trump, I can't imagine those issues mattering. And against the Hillary Clinton and the long Clinton's long history of corruption and misuse of public power, I can't imagine Trump University counting. Unfortunately, I think what's going to matter is like really nasty things they say about each other and their supporters, pictures they do of each other and the B word and all that. It's just like I hate to say that. I don't think we're arguing about things like that when the general election comes. And also the Republicans always overshoot and attacking the Clintons. We saw that again with Libya. We saw that with anything involving sex with Bill Clinton. 
and I think they're going to overshoot with abortion. And I think that's the kind of stuff that's going to come back to actually help Hillary Clinton. Okay, so speaking of people who really want to make sure that the Democratic nominee wins the general election, our own Governor Dan Malloy has taken over the leadership of the Democratic Governors Association. Um, We've joked back and forth with him, Kevin Rennie, over over the years about how he really likes to work. He doesn't ever take days off. A couple of years ago, he said he liked leap year day because he got an extra day in the calendar to actually to actually work. This week, he spent some time while all this other stuff was going on in Puerto Rico at a Democratic Governors Association meeting. It's a National Governors Association. It's a National Governors Association meeting, excuse me, and also taking him some time for his family, which I see as a very positive step for, for the governor, stepping away from some of the stuff and, and saying, I'm actually going to go on a vacation. What do you see? I think it's fine. We're used to not having him in Connecticut. I, frankly, I, I don't really see much of a difference in, in the. The course of state government, whether he's here or he's in Beverly Hills raising money for the Democratic Governors Association. Is there is there something to be to be said for the notion that as our state is going through this budget crisis, he is spending a bunch of time, though, on the road raising money and hopefully for him raising votes for Hillary Clinton? Well, he you know, right from the start, he's wanted to be something more than just the governor of Connecticut. So this is in line with that that long pattern. I think the problem is for him accomplishing that goal is that here in Connecticut, uh, the, econ- the state state government and, and, uh, and the budget situation is deteriorating at such a, a quick pace and really an inic- for inexplicable reasons so far that it, it is going to harm him. Your, your column this, this past week seems to place more of the blame for a lot of the problems that are happening right now at the state with the legislature, not so much with the governor. Was I reading you right? Well, I think he has come around. He, he has faced these numbers, uh, these, these deteriorating numbers, uh, quicker than they have, and um, which you'd hope a governor would do. He has many more resources, and you, count, you sort of count on him to be in charge. And uh, but it took him a long time, and he and he inflicted a lot of damage before he's before he's uh, acknowledged this reality. And the the one thing that everyone has in common is they the numbers are so, are so big this year and into the next several years they don't know what to do. Yeah, but you know, Kevin, I think that's a cheap shot in both ends on Malloy, both the credit you're giving him and the attack you put on him. I mean, to attack him for traveling and not as being engaged in the state is really silly. The I guy didn't is attack that, him. I said he's been doing it since since he got into office but to he raise has his been, profile. He's doing town meetings like he's a candidate. I feel like he's running for local office. I was wondering if there's like a mayor's open <laughs> shop at open. He's gone to all these town meetings to talk about pensions. He's gone to all these local stations. He's come to our little radio station twice in like two months to talk about about the debt uh, plan he has, to talk about Second Chance Society, to talk about transportation lockbox. I mean, these are like nuts and bolts issue that he's engaging. He, he gets yelled at at all these town meetings by people, and he's like explaining his positions in a way that is so engaged in local. And on the other hand, Republicans like Kevin are praising him for buying into this nonsense about you can never raise taxes. I mean, look at our gas prices, John and Kevin and Rennie, I mean, we've gone down more than two dollars a gallon in gas. Yeah, and you know, years, and it's been and great we can't for raise working them. families. It's been yeah. great for working. But this families. is the nonsense about it's not great for them if we have all this debt or if we have to keep cutting services. Working families who can't put their kids in a home for the disabled or for because things are getting cut. It's going to be great if you have to wait in court and stay or get locked up without bond reform or have uh, drug courts operating. I mean, Kevin, if your gas taxes go down. If you get, I mean, if the price of a gallon of gas goes down more than two dollars in a couple of years, 
you can't even think about immediately bringing it back 14 cents to where John Rowland had it a bunch of years ago. Rather than cut everything, you can't. I mean, the states around us are all legalizing pot. They say it's going to bring $50.5 million a year in revenues. No one even wants to talk about that. I, I don't understand why you're saying you can never tax. What's so great to work we with We can families? never tax. Connecticut has some of the highest taxes in the nation. How, how is it that we can never tax? We don't have higher taxes in the states around us, but yet you, you feel yes, like— Yes, we do. We do. Yeah. But, but not a higher income tax than, say, New York, which is something we that— We do that... because we don't have a graduated income tax. Our tax is you reach, you reach a certain point, all your income is taxed at that highest level. Yep. And, it's, and, different than, it's different than our neighboring and we have a very And we have a very different local tax system, certainly, and we haven't come to grips with property tax reform, how much it costs to actually own a home, to own a vehicle, to do a lot of the things that you need to do. Well, right now when we have yeah. a crisis, why can't you pay a quarter more for a gallon of gas or even 50 cents when you're worth two bucks and change and you're less than you're paying before so that you don't have misery? To, Rennie Falco, do we tax our way out of the problem? Um, well, we might raise some taxes. I'm not sure we can tax our way out of any problem. I mean, I, I think that's I guess I see it also in the national context. And one of the just points I would like to make is that since we have had no policy at the federal level, including policies that might help the states in one way or another, I mean, look what it took to get a transportation bill, right? The kinds of things that states depend on. And I would say that the polarization and paralysis in Washington has had a real direct effect on every state, not just Connecticut. And if you're in a position where you're losing revenue, it seems to me, in the way that we are, you've got – your problems are multiplied, but so, amplified. So, so, so Kevin Rennie, I, at the state level then, with all of this, worries about actual money coming from the federal government because of gridlock, the fact is we probably don't want to raise our taxes all that much in part because we want to be competitive with neighboring states, but also because we just know how darn volatile something like the income tax is. We're we're in a trough right now in part because we can't really rely on the rich people to give us the money that they used to because they're having a bad couple of years since 2006. So important well, question for you, not, Kevin. It's Rennie. not just that. Yeah. Not just that they're, you can't rely on them to give. It's not their giving. We take it from them. But they um, – it, it's I was that, using the positive verb, but anyway, it's, please. It's, 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 no, go, it's, go ahead, Kevin. Yep. Taxes is taking. What a bizarre notion. It is taking okay. it from people. Well, so, so, but here's what I want to get from you, Kevin, is where, what do we cut? What do we do? We're, we're talking about a thousand state layoffs or more. We're talking oh, about big cuts to social services. You know, the, the what pro- the heck? And one of the, one of the challenges is it's very hard to do these things in a short legislative session in an election year. It's just, it's, it's very hard for the legislature in particular to muster the will. And so I think that to get through this year, they may take money from the um, rainy day fund and get through November and then come back after November and face this growing deficit that they're in right now and the, as well as the one that follows it. Because, yeah, there's a deficit right now. Kevin Lembo, the state comptroller, says $220 million deficit in this current fiscal year. We're talking $900 million next year. And it's it's grown a lot since December when they when they uh, first approached it and tried to do something about it, and um, and there's re- no real good explanation. You know, we're not, the nation's not in a recession. We've had about three percent growth for the last few years, and so these large deficits coming on the heels of of pretty big tax increases um, are are really confounding policymakers. Uh, Paul Bass, is it time to go back once again to state workers, open up negotiations and say, we're going to have to do something here about changing the way the state pays for all the services it provides? I do think if, as long as it's part of a broader plan, 
And also, I think we have to look at something you just brought up, John, which is so interesting to me, the way that income tax has become an unpredictable source of revenue. Because when we passed the income tax in the early 90s, the argument was that the sales tax was less predictable and that the income tax would become a predictable um, source of revenue. So yes, I think if we're going to reopen talk with state workers, it has to be part of a broader view that includes some taxation, even, God forbid, paying another quarter at the pump. And you can't tax your way out of the problem, John. I agree. But you're talking, it's got to be part of some solution, yes. Uh, Derek Sculling from Windsor. Hey, Derek, what's on your mind? John, how are you? Good. What's up? Uh, these are the kind of things that I get upset over, John. I am a homeowner, and I hear one of you guys on the panel there talking about why can't we pay more tax. I want to ask him if he know that Connecticut is one. I think the fourth or fifth. Last time I heard, um, highest tax um, state in, in, in the whole nation. I think as it is, we are overtaxed, and I don't need to pay no more taxes. And if you look at the medium income in Connecticut, I think it's right around $9, or around $9. Even though they talk about the minimum wage being $15, that's, that's over three, four years. By the time you get that $15, you're right back to square once. If you have money to pay, and Derek, we're losing we're losing your line a little bit, but you make a a point. And Kevin Ray, so Derek from Windsor is is you know echoing what you're saying. We just we can't raise taxes in the state anymore to pay for all the stuff we need to do. You know, I think there is a growing feeling that we've we've reached the ceiling on on taxes. We've had, you know, just in the last uh, five year. Well, we haven't had a tax increase this year, but it, in 2011 and uh, last year 2015, we had the two largest tax increases in Connecticut history. It's so unusual to have large tax increases like that followed by these enormous deficits. And, and it, so, Rennie Falco, then what? What do we do? I mean, this is you're, you're talking about it being in the national context. We we're in the middle of a presidential campaign year in which, again, we we don't want to talk about more taxes to do some of the things that we need to do. How does how does Connecticut fit into this? Because, I mean, we're not the only state having this problem. We're not the only state with a billion-dollar deficit right now. And let's tie it back to our first part of our conversation. I mean, the reason people are frustrated and angry and feel despair when they do is precisely because of this, right? Because it's not only despair about what's going on in Washington. I think it's also at the local level and people feeling that, you know, that services are being cut and that maybe taxes are going up and that there don't seem to be solutions to the problems. I, I want to turn away from despair for a moment, Paul Bass, and actually get into a good news story because this is a little bit of a counter narrative. And we did some of this last week, you know, talking about what Kevin Rennie was saying earlier, you know, 50 percent of people in polls say that they want to leave Connecticut, trying to figure out why young people leave all the time. But meanwhile, in your hometown of New Haven, Lexion Pharmaceuticals will have a thousand workers at its New Haven headquarters uh, later this month. They're betting big on the city. They're betting big on bioscience. I mean, what does it mean to have Alexion building this big headquarters, even bigger, frankly, in terms of number of workers than we expected when the when the steel started going up? I think it's a good story happening in New Haven. It's not just Alexion. They're going to have 1,200 workers at that place to start. They think it's going to be 1,700. They do clinical trials. Alexion Pharmaceuticals is a company that was hatched in New Haven at Science Park, which is our incubator space. Went to Cheshire, was going out to the suburbs, and they came back. And in New Haven, there's a land grab going on. Developers want to come here. We don't have to give them money for it, which is very different from anything we've seen, John, in the last 30 years that you and I have been around. We used to have to give them tax breaks to come. We're not giving them tax breaks. There's another um, big project happening on the other side of town in Fairhaven where they're going to 
take an old Connecticut bus depot and they're going to build a $16 million technology innovation hub. Um, there's a developers who have been buying up properties in poor neighborhoods where they're going to build mixes of housing and offices. And yeah, New Haven's hot. And a lot of it is that biosciences. Um, they're even talking about me building a sex in Alexion building right nearby. It's a part of town where we've gotten rid of a mini highway to nowhere that was built during urban renewal. People want to build over it. It's just neighborhoods together. It's a, it's good news. So this week, Alexion had the official opening of their building, a 14 story office building in downtown. And it's going to be, they don't manufacture their drugs there. It's clinical trials and research. And it's a good story. Science Park, which was stumbling for many years, that was our um, incubation center that we're supposed to hatch new companies from biosciences and high tech that was built in the 80s and stumbled for a long time. It's now full. There's no more space to go there. 300 George Street's another building near Alexion where we do that. So in the combination of combining with uh, Yale Medical School and the research that goes on there, and a kind of growing tech sector in New Haven. It's good news. So, but uh, Kevin Rennie, how, I mean, how do we bottle this? I mean, we see we see growth in New Haven. We see cranes and people building stuff in in one city. And it's look, it's not just Yale, and it's not just the fact that it's on the shoreline. There's there's a lot that goes into this. But I mean, what's the magic there that maybe could spread across the rest of the state? Just as an as an observer from about fifty miles away, it, it does seem like Yale got something started, and then it took root. And now you have this this really terrific um, flourishing of it in the in the greater New Haven area, and I'm not you know, one of the things I, I I wonder about is government often says well let's often says particularly in the Roland years it was let's have a cluster of this industry in this place, and oftentimes the people in government have no experience with that and haven't worked in that area, and it just sounds good and they have at that time they had plenty of resources to spread around, clearly. This has worked out much better, and it's you know it's great for New Haven. Obviously, Yale and New Haven have have nurtured this, and uh, it's likely to keep growing. It, meanwhile, though, I mean, look, the, the big state university, uh, Rennie, you work at Trinity here in Hartford, but you know Hartford ha- doesn't have this kind of cluster of science and technology, and we keep building buildings out in stores, Connecticut, and not bringing them downtown. I mean, could some influx like that in a city like Hartford help jumpstart things? Well, I think the f- yeah, look, it's the fact that it's Yale is kind of the anchor for all of this, and the affiliated hospitals and other centers that Yale has. I think Yale is in a unique position. Again, I don't think UConn is in quite the same position. But I will just raise an issue here. If you look at the kinds of jobs that are likely to be had there, that requires education. It requires technical skill. I mean, many, many of those jobs require people who have a really good education. And so we come back to that issue when you look, you have probably more opportunities for that in New Haven than you're going to have in Hartford. And again, that's Yale, part of the problem. But Yale's obviously crucial, but I think small cities are doing better. And I think that especially as you're coming up from New York and that greater region grows, a lot of people want to live in New Haven, whether it's empty nesters or millennials who want to be in cities and not own cars and have stuff to do with this great art scene we have and, and the restaurants. I mean, housing is hot in New Haven. Market rate housing Developers who get no tax breaks to build. It's not just about Yale and Alexion. But if Yale were not there, you wouldn't have that. I can tell you as someone who teaches at Trinity College, it makes a big difference. Kevin, any last word on this? I I wish that uh, the state had put the new 
UConn Hospital and Jackson Labs in downtown Hartford. <laughs> You're singing my song. I've been yep. saying Absolutely. that for years. That was a uh, terrible uh, mistake. <laughs> Kevin Rennie from the Hartford Current, uh, Paul Bass from the New Haven Independent, Rennie Falco from Trinity College. When we come back, we're going to take a look at a Senate race that is even seemingly more lopsided for Richard Blumenthal and also talk about a game that Paul Bass was playing last night, a game that involved Super Tuesday candidates. That's coming up next in the wheelhouse where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, a new investigation takes us to Houston, Texas, for a look at how that city's bracing for the next big hurricane. It's the next uh, show on Reveal, the investigative program on WNPR. We're going to chat with one of the reporters there, and we're also going to talk about how states in the Northeast are dealing with the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy and prepping for more events like it in years to come. That's tomorrow's program. Today in the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, we're joined by Paul Bass from the New Haven Independent, Rennie Falco from Trinity College, Kevin Rennie from the Hartford Current, um, we heard f- uh, from Donald Trump last night talking about Larry Kudlow, the uh, CNBC contributor who decided not to run against CN- uh, Connecticut U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal. Kudlow uh, is uh, giving some advice uh, to Donald Trump on his economic plan. Um, last week, the one Republican who is officially running against Blumenthal, August Wolf, um, was on the Colin McEnroe show. And it, actually, this interview was from, from a while ago, talking about how he was an underdog in this race against Blumenthal. I believe that we are going to assemble one of the best ground game teams uh, in Connecticut political history uh, over the next nine months. But I also would would just uh, highlight the fact that uh, six, nine months ago, not one political expert would would say that Donald Trump had a chance of doing what he's done. Times have changed. It's social media changed things. It's just that the the mood of the populace has changed. Uh, This is going to be a wild year for politics. And just to be clear, that's August Wolf, uh, who is a Republican running against Richard Blumenthal, talking with Colin McEnroe just last week. And then just the next day, the Connecticut Mirror's Mark Pazniokas writes, Wolf's campaign is coping with allegations of a hostile work environment, turnover of top staff, tight money, and the threat of civil action by the Federal Election Commission. Can we ever get anybody uh, in the state and the Republican Party, Kevin Rennie, to run against somebody like Richard Blumenthal? Well, we did six years ago, but once there, once someone wins... Once a Democrat wins in Connecticut it, in the, for, the, for congressional offices, it's different. You know, I think a lot of Connecticut voters will elect Republicans to kind of moderate Republicans to state office, but they don't want Republicans going down to Washington to work with all those other Republicans that they see there. <laughs> and I think that that's that's a big, there's a big difference. And um, so August Wolf, I think, has some. Uh, some wilder days ahead for his campaign. But, but it also speaks to any focus to this, this larger issue of in a state like Connecticut, I mean, if, if the Republican Party put up some viable candidates over time at con- in congressional races, maybe more state legislative races, and certainly when, when a Senate race comes up, maybe that would change the focus of the party, change the, uh, the, the math in Connecticut for the Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, there have been closer races, congressional races over the last two decades. I mean, I think that that's not quite I don't see it quite that way. I think it's the power of incumbency everywhere. It's not just in Connecticut. It's that there are so few competitive districts in the entire country. Well, in the last 10 years, we've had huge swings in the makeup of certainly the House and and the Senate. So there are there are competitive districts. They're just they're just not in Connecticut. And, you know, as an example, you're a state senator in what might be a competitive congressional district in Connecticut. It's very unlikely that you're going to risk the seat that you have 
for one that's going to be really hard to win. Okay, so for the last couple of minutes, we're going to loop back to the start of our conversation. Paul Bass, you had let us know that you, you and your, your staff are going to be doing something fun yesterday, an actual a board game created to help you work through Super Tuesday. I, I was confused, but it sounded fascinating to me. What is it what you were doing? This guy named Brandon Patton, he lives in New Haven. He designs games for medical companies, like medicals and stuff, or living, and he also plays uh, bass in a touring nerd rap band. <laughs> He he developed a new he game, he did a great new game called Super Packs, and um, he's got it through Kickstarter, and they developed pretty far, and he got a bunch of us to come to the Grove. They have a place called the Happiness Lab, and they have a game night. They had a big screen up with all the Super Tuesday results, and meanwhile, they were teaching out this board game in teams of four. We had about 25 people there, and we were trying, it's a very complicated game, you know, the millennial games. It's a little hard for people my age to follow all the rules, but it's very interesting. You try to amass power by, by um, not just winning elections, but getting coalitions of interest groups. So as they flashed last night at 8 o'clock on the screen on CNN that Bernie Sanders had won Vermont and you had that like everything about Bernie's campaign is that one minute bong hit where you believe this different world's coming about. At that moment, I had to trade in the marijuana lobby on my coalition in order to stay alive in the game to have hedge funds, the prison industrial complex and climate change deniers to keep me alive. And then I was playing next to Markeisha Ricks, who's a reporter at The Independent, who was much better at the game. She destroyed the rest of my coalition by playing a card with the conservative talk radio card that that got rid of the liberal media so i knew that times had changed it was interesting to me so it's a game they've developed that people can buy called super packs um you can find it online and um it it, it talks about the how but it made playing that game last night i really realized as the election results came in how much the rules have changed because the goal of the game is to amass power that you can sometimes win elections by losing, whether it's Sheldon Adelson and Super PACs and the Koch brothers. But Donald Trump originally was playing that game. Donald Trump originally was building his brand by running for office. All of a sudden, this scary pivot has occurred where he's actually running to win and to run the country and scambling all the coalitions that we thought explained politics. And, 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 and li- it's a new era. And life is strangely ready, Folko, in 30 seconds, yeah, like a board game. the last thing that I would say here is, you know, last time you and I had a conversation like this, maybe a year or two ago, it was all about money and politics. And I think it's really interesting to see how that has receded. And we have a completely different game going on now in terms of the money and how much effect it's actually going to have. And who's the case in point? George Bush, Right. Well, I mean, Jeb Bush. Jeb sorry. Bush. No, Jeb Bush couldn't even have his brother George help him, but all the money that went in for Jeb, to no, for no end, to no end. It just it just went poof. Rennie Falco is associate professor and director of the public policy and law program at Trinity College. Thanks so much, Rennie. Happy to be here. Thanks also to Paul Bass, editor of the New Haven Independent, who joined us from the WNPR studios in New Haven. He's also host of Dateline New Haven on WNHH. Thanks so much, Paul. Thanks so much, John. And Kevin Rennie. He's an attorney. He's also a columnist for the Hartford Current. Always good to see you, Kevin. Thank you, John. It's nice to be here. And thanks to the cameras of CTN for being here. Tucker Eyes produced our show. I'm John Dankosky. This is where we live. This is WNPR.